This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour. Hello, this is Joel Hilliker, Managing Editor of the Philadelphia Trumpet News Magazine. We have an eclectic collection of stories on today's program. We're going to have a conversation with a writer for Watch Jerusalem, a sister website to the Trumpet, which has its own radio program here on KPCG. This program hits a lot of interesting information related to Jerusalem and Israel, past, present, and future, including a lot about archaeology. Christopher Eames gave a program recently about dinosaurs and the Ice Age and early man. He asked whether these things that can be proven from archaeological evidence actually contradict what's in the Bible. We'll have a conversation with him about that. We'll also talk with trumpet writer Josue Michels about a trend in Europe as it faces challenges to its very identity, and people are taking more interest in the Holy Roman Empire. A number of events and exhibits are reviving this cultural legacy, and we'll talk about why that is and how it fulfills a biblical prophecy. At the end of the show, I'll talk about one of the best things that you can do for your son. We'll begin, though, by talking about a form of tyranny growing in America. Fifteen years ago, I visited Washington, D.C. for the first time. The Jefferson Memorial made a deep impression on me, especially the words of Jefferson etched in capital letters inside the rotunda. It says, I have sworn upon the altar of God eternal hostility against every form of tyranny over the mind of man. Well, it happens that Thomas Jefferson is under attack today and that a particularly deadly form of tyranny over the mind of man is on the march. Two steps were taken last month, one by the House of Representatives, the U.S. House of Representatives, the other by the California Department of Education that represent this encroaching tyranny. The U.S. House of Representatives just passed the Equality Act. This bill adds sexual orientation and gender identity as protected classes under the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Here's a summary of the Equality Act from Congress.gov. This bill prohibits discrimination based on sex, sexual orientation, and gender identity in areas including public accommodations and facilities, education, federal funding, employment, housing, credit, and the jury system. Specifically, the bill defines and includes sex, sexual orientation, and gender identity among the prohibited categories of discrimination or segregation. The bill prohibits an individual from being denied access to a shared facility, including a restroom, a locker room, and a dressing room that is in accordance with the individual's gender identity. Now, the chances of this actually becoming federal law are slim under the Trump administration, but it shows the direction these lawmakers are taking, and there are already portions of the country that have this kind of anti-discrimination law or places where these kinds of policies are being pushed, And if you look at the examples from where those are the law, we can see what the Equality Act would bring nationwide. I want to read uh, a set of arguments from an article by um, 
Monica Burke for the Heritage Foundation. It's called Seven Reasons Why the Equality Act is Anything But. She gives these these reasons, and I'll just read them to you and give you some examples of how this is already taking place. First example she gives is that it would penalize Americans who don't affirm new sexual norms or gender ideology. The second reason is it would compel speech. In other words, it forces people to actively accept gender identity by using language like preferred pronouns. Uh, There was an example in December of last year. There was a French teacher in Virginia who had a female student who began identifying as a boy, and he called her by her new masculine name, but he avoided using any pronouns around her, and he was fired. He didn't overtly confront her decision, but he refused to use her preferred pronouns. And this man said, well, I'm happy to avoid female pronouns not to offend because I'm not here to provoke, but I can't refer to a female as a male and a male as a female in good conscience and faith. But that wasn't good enough. Just avoiding the pronouns still got him fired. So if the the um, Equality Act becomes law, we're going to see more of that type of thing. The third reason she gives it, it could shut down charities. And fourth, it would allow more biological males to defeat girls in sports. We're seeing more of, of those types of stories all the time. Fifth, it could be used to coerce medical professionals. The Equality Act would actually make it illegal for hospitals and other health care providers to refuse transitional treatments and surgeries, even to young people. It's already forcing medical professionals to push young people toward these radical procedures. Uh, This is an article that was in American Thinker on May 10th. It says 20 states have introduced and 16 states have already passed bills like Minnesota's pending HF-12, which condemns any practice, quote, that seeks to change an individual's sexual orientation or gender identity, including efforts to change behaviors or gender expressions. These bans apply even if such procedures are voluntarily chosen and follow well-established evidence-based methods of therapy. If conversion therapy bans continue to pass in state after state, it will soon be impossible for any parent to find a legal therapist who can help their children learn to love and accept their own bodies. They're forcing healthcare providers to provide these transitional therapies whether or not the person wants it. The Heritage Foundation says the Equality Act would politicize medicine by forcing professionals to act against their best medical judgment and provide transition-affirming therapies. And it gives examples of Catholic hospitals that have been sued for declining to perform hysterectomies on otherwise healthy women who want to become male. A sixth reason why this is such a bad idea, it could lead to more parents losing custody of their children. There was a recent example in Canada. Last month, British Columbia's Supreme Court ruled that a father who won't call his gender-confused daughter a boy is guilty of family violence. The court issued a protection order for officers to arrest him if they have reasonable grounds to believe he's called his daughter a girl, even in private. And last year, a 17-year-old girl in Ohio was removed from her parents' custody because they refused to give her testosterone supplements. 
so she could transition. The girl had gender dysphoria and was recommended testosterone treatments by the Cincinnati Children's Gender Clinic. And the parents wanted the daughter to receive counseling instead. But because of that, they were charged with abuse and neglect, and they lost her custody. The seventh reason is that this law would enable sexual assault. There was a, uh, a man who claimed to be a woman who sued the Anchorage, Alaska Downtown Hope Center for discriminating against his gender identity. This is a nonprofit organization, a shelter for homeless people and abused and trafficked women, and they wouldn't give him entrance because of the danger he could pose to the vulnerable women in their facility. Under the Equality Act, it would be illegal to refuse this man access to the women's shelter, including their bathrooms and their showers and their sleeping areas. In May 2017, a rule was passed for all the schools in Decatur, Georgia, requiring them to allow boys who identify as girls into female restrooms, locker rooms, and other private female areas. Six months later, in November 2017, a kindergarten girl was sexually abused in the girl's restroom by a boy who claimed to identify as a female. And even after this, the school refused to change its transgender policy. So the Equality Act, it is a disaster. But the House of Representatives just passed it. And it's likely going to founder in the Senate. But again, we see the direction that these lawmakers want to take. Now, the second thing that happened last month, the California State Board of Education adopted a new curriculum called Revised Draft 2019 Health Education Framework, HEF. And according to the California Department of Education, these standards promote, quote, the development of knowledge, skills, and attitudes in a number of broad areas, including sexual health. The CDE says this on its website. It is permissible to teach knowledge and skills related to comprehensive sexual health and HIV prevention education in grades kindergarten through sixth grade. And these new guidelines require a book for K through third grade titled, Who Are You? The Kid's Guide to Gender Identity. This book says some people say there are only two genders, but there are really many genders, and for some people, there are more than just two choices. Another book recommended by these guidelines is The What's Happening to My Body Book for Boys. This book is for fourth to sixth graders, and it includes slang words for male and female genitals. It says sexual fantasies can be rich and a varied way of experimenting with your sexual self. It normalizes homosexuality and other preferences it says i don't even want to talk about what's in the book that they give to high schoolers it's full of perverted concepts but this is the curriculum being forced on families who choose to send their kids to public school in california more and more of people who resist this type of thing are being punished they're facing legal penalties and you see these kinds of stories more and more and more transgenderism has gone from a universally recognized perversion to being society-wide revolution. It is accepted, and they are forcing their views on anyone who disagrees with them. That is tyranny over the mind of man, even over the mind of kindergartners. Now, anyone should be able to see that this is evil just by looking at the fruits. It's full of lies 
They cover up irrefutable scientific evidence and facts. They deliberately deceive parents to encourage children to transition at school. They use the language of inclusiveness and tolerance, but then they punish and threaten and bully anyone who doesn't support them. They take legal action to attack people for not using correct pronouns. They promise that they'll resolve people's confusion, but if you study into what they actually do to people, even to children, they are destroying people's bodies. They're destroying people's lives with experimental hormone treatments and perverse surgeries. They will not tell people about the risks and the dangers and the the ill effects of these procedures and the failures. Transgender people, even after all their treatments, are miserable. They're suicidal, far more than than people at large, and they want to blame 100% of that on society for not accepting them. And at the same time, if you read anything about this in the news and the media, they try to make it look so positive and like these people are just so happy and full of joy, despite the fact that what they're doing defies logic, it defies facts and truth, and they demand strict compliance from everyone. It is tyrannical. It is oppressive. There's no trend in society that better exposes the deceit, the moral bankruptcy, the the opportunism, the authoritarian inclinations, and the evil, the downright evil of the left in society if you want to know how the devil does business watch what this movement is doing the fruits are abominable and this whole movement has the devil's fingerprints all over it now to close i just want to make the point that this shows the deadly danger of trying to appease evil you take one step down the road of evil and you're going to end up in deeper and deeper darkness proverbs 27 and verse 20 says hell and destruction are never full so the eyes of man are never satisfied human lust is insatiable sin and evil cannot be satisfied and that's why god tells us to confront it confront sin confront evil fight it get it out With this evil movement, you see that it cannot be satisfied really on two levels. One is trying to appease the movement is a fool's errand. It will never be satisfied. They're always expanding their demands. They're just, you know, they start by saying, well, we just want people to stop ridiculing us. Well, actually, society must accept us. No, embrace us. Actually, we need to encourage this and we need to celebrate this. They say that, first of all, trans women can't be considered any different from biological women. They must be allowed to compete in beauty pageants and sports against women. They have to be allowed access to women's bathrooms and locker rooms. They say gender is just a social construct. Well, no, actually a person's internal gender identity is their destiny and biological sex is just a social construct. That's what they're saying now. They say that you can be a man in a woman's body or a woman in a man's body. They say that gender identity is fixed and the only way to accommodate it is to physically transition until they say now, actually, gender identity is fluid. It can change even every day or every few hours. 
There's just no sense. There's no solid principles here. And yet, if you suggest that, well, you know, if it's fluid, maybe a transgender would be better off if their gender identity matched their biology. Or if you call them by the wrong pronoun, they say, well, that's going to cause significant emotional harm that could drive that person to commit suicide. None of it makes sense. But society is trying to appease this movement and they keep changing the rules and raising new demands. We're trying to satisfy evil by feeding it. We are appeasing and negotiating our way to becoming worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. Hell and destruction are never satisfied. And the second way that you see that principle at play is with individuals who go down this road and they're trying to make this impossible transition into something that they are not. One woman who transitioned as a teenager, she went on testosterone, then she changed her name, then she got a mastectomy, then she got a hysterectomy, and so on. She said, I could keep going and changing my body in search of this finishing point, but I don't think I would ever have arrived. Transition didn't really make my dysphoria better. It just kind of kept moving the goalposts. So I felt like I was making progress, but I never got any closer to where I wanted to be or where I thought I wanted to be. Now, that's what happens when you exalt feelings over facts and reality. The human heart, Jeremiah 17, verse 9, says, is sick. And if you follow that, you will get sicker. Another woman who transitioned as a teen, she she said, having a set of steps to focus on completing in order to acquire some peace of mind gave me hope and a sense of direction for a while until I completed all the steps I had wanted to accomplish and was extremely disappointed to find myself still facing pretty much the same issues I had as a teenager. What were presented to her as solutions were illusions. These are steps that lead people into ruin. Hell and destruction are never satisfied. That's why God says in Romans 12 and verse 9, abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. So we have to have a polar opposite approach to good and evil. That means we have to recognize which is which. That verse doesn't say understand that which is evil or negotiate with it or try to reason with it. It says abhor, detest utterly that which is evil. And our world today can't even recognize evil. Whether or not we realize it as a society, we are in a war with evil. And you can't prevail in warfare if you're lukewarm about your enemy. But people have no solid principles, no unshakable convictions, and so they're being overcome by evil. God sees evil for exactly what it is. In his eyes, the difference between good and evil is as plain as the difference between midnight and sunlight. And we have to see evil as God does. The evil in the world, the evil in society, even in ourselves. This is really in some ways, the fundamental lesson of the Bible. It starts with the two trees there in the Garden of Eden. 
There's one tree that is pure good, and there's another tree that's mixed with a measure of evil, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it might be just a little bit of evil, but one of those trees leads to life, and the other leads to death. And we need God to show us the difference, and we need to trust Him and obey Him and eat liberally of the one that leads to life and flee the other one. Get away from it completely. You can look in Amos 5 and verse 15, and this is in the context of severe punishment that God is going to inflict on the nations of Israel in this end time. And it says, hate the evil and love the good and establish judgment in the gate. It may be that the eternal God of hosts will be gracious unto the remnant of Joseph. And that includes the United States today. But that's how God thinks. The more we think like God, the more we will hate evil and love good. And if you think that way, it's going to drive your actions toward righteousness. Watch what happens in society because we're ignoring that command. This movement is going to keep growing. The stories are going to keep coming. What was shocking yesterday is routine today, and what shocks us today, it's going to be common tomorrow. And why is that? It's because in the face of this rising tyranny over the mind of man, we simply are not summoning enough righteous, intellectual, emotional, and moral hostility. And as a result, more and more of us are certain to feel its steel, like the dad who now risks being jailed if he quote-unquote incorrectly addresses his daughter in his own home. is the voice of the Trumpet News Magazine. You're listening to Trumpet Hour. Archaeology has uncovered evidence of ancient civilizations on Earth, including dinosaurs and other animals that are long extinct. There are some people who believe the the Bible, who say that Scripture says the Earth is only 6,000 years old, so they try to find a way to reconcile all that archaeological evidence with a 6,000-year-old earth. Our next guest says that you can reconcile the Bible with these findings if you understand it correctly. Christopher Eames is from the staff of Watch Jerusalem, our sister website at thetrumpet.com, and he talked about this on a recent Watch Jerusalem podcast, and he's here via Skype from England to talk about it with us. Hello, Chris. Hello, I'm still okay. So uh, if you could just first talk about the efforts of the people who believe that the Earth is 6,000 years old to reconcile that belief with these scientific discoveries and, and uh, the, uh, what archaeology tells us. Sure. Well, there's a couple of different ways they go about this. Uh, there's a couple of different um, and completely opposite methods. There's the, there's the young Earth creationism. So they believe the, the Earth is 6,000 years old. And, and sort of try and cram the dinosaur age and the ice age and, and all of that all together. Uh, d- different uh, opinions come across in terms of some believe the dinosaurs went on the ark. Some believe that they still exist to this day somewhere in the jungles uh, of, of Africa or the Amazon. 
some believe the flood wiped out the dinosaurs and then they often look at the dating uh, and and try and point out problems with with dating carbon dating different types of dating which there are problems uh, but they try and point that out and and say that well all of it does fit into a 6000 year window another big uh, theory is old earth creationism and this method uh, actually uh, doesn't follow the 6,000 years at all, but it looks at the seven-day creation week and basically consider, considers that as an epoch. So each day being a thousand-year epoch or perhaps a million-year epoch. But this method doesn't work uh, either because if you read the seven days of creation, you sort of need one thing to be in existence in order for another thing to be in existence. And if this one thing that was created uh, wasn't around for a thousand years, then what had been created before that would have simply died off mm -hmm. um, without going into all the details. And then you have theistic evolution, which is basically the idea that all of these early chapters of the Bible are just sort of a, a, a nice lesson, at, but they didn't really happen. Uh, these These people believe in the Bible, but see these first chapters more as being kind of an analogy and, and not being literal. So uh, you would say that the uh, the evidence is pretty conclusive, though, that the Bible is, is older than 6,000 years. Uh, how do you reconcile that with what the Bible says? Sure. Well, the Bible doesn't put a time stamp on when the earth was created. It doesn't say 6,000 years ago, God created the heavens and the earth. And a lot of people have this idea that it does. Uh, the, the creation week can be dated back 6,000 years. The, uh, that, that's pretty easy to come to that conclusion. We've got the Genesis 5 genealogy. That takes us back to Adam 6,000 years, and then Adam was made at the end of the creation week, so a week earlier than that. So you could say <laughs> roughly 6,000 years ago and a week. Yeah. Um, but there, there are some real key scriptures here in the first chapter of Genesis that people simply overlook, and those are the very first two uh, verses in chapter 1 of Genesis, and it talks about, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And then the Bible begins talking about the creation week. So actually, before this creation week even happens, you already have an earth, you already have heavens. That's established in verse 1. God cre God's created the heavens and the earth already. Verse 2, you can see you already have waters upon the earth. So we've got earth and a heavens that have already been created. And if you look into the uh, into parallel scriptures that talk about the creation, you see that the creation week from verse 3 onwards is actually a recreation, a recreation of the earth. And and it, when you put all the scriptures together, it makes a lot of sense. Now, verse 2 talks about the, the utter destruction of the earth. It talks about the earth was without form and void. Those words are tohu and bohu in the Hebrew, and it talks about utter waste and desolation. Now, you look at, at, at a passage further along in the Bible, Isaiah 45, verse 18, that specifically says, God created the earth not in vain. And mm -hmm. that word vain is exactly the same word here, tohu. So God didn't create the earth this way. But if you're to believe what, what so many people just assume, 
then then you would have to say that God created the earth tohu or in vain. But that's not what it says here at all. It says that God created the heavens and the earth. So he already created the heavens and the earth in verse one. And then something happened to it. Something happened to the heavens and the earth to cause it to become tohu and bohu without form and void, a, a period of utter destruction. Okay, so we maybe we could talk about that uh, a little bit later, but we you're talking about two different ages i guess or there's there's something that's going on on earth before what you read in genesis 2 um what other biblical evidence is there of say what was going on during that uh pre genesis 1 2 age sure well uh without going into too much detail there there's a few passages uh including isaiah 14 uh ezekiel 28 uh, Jude chapter 1 that talks about this world, uh, an angelic world, a world that was dominated by, by angels, uh, uh, an earth that was already in existence and that was ruled over by angels. And the, the, the passages, especially Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, talk about an angelic rebellion that actually brought utter destruction to the earth um, uh, with, with Lucifer, who became Satan the devil, uh, rising up against God and attempting to overthrow God. And then there was this, uh, this heavenly uh, war that, that led to the destruction of the earth. And that matches up with Genesis 1 and verse 2, where it talks about the earth becoming without form and void. It talks about, and the earth was without form and void. The word was is better translated, became. So we have this earth that suddenly rendered utterly useless, destroyed, waste, darkness mm-hmm. was upon the face of the deep. And so that matches up really closely with these other uh, passages through the Bible that talk about an initial world that was ruled by angels and an earth created by God, given to the angels, sort of a plan A, you could call it. And this was a world that was destroyed. And then verse 3 onwards of Genesis 1, we have, you could say, a plan B, a recreation of the earth with the creation week uh, for the age of man. Okay, so you're talking about the dinosaurs, uh, ice age animals, all of this happening in that world before what we're reading in uh, the 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 main part of Genesis one that's describing the recreation. Uh, not not quite. So the dinosaurs, the the age of reptiles, you could call it. That's the Mesozoic era. That era would fit perfectly well into the first stage, plan A, the, uh, the initial creation of the earth. And the, the, the dinosaurs uh, could have lived millions and millions of years ago. That's, that's how science dates them. Uh, a lot of the dating methods uh, are unreliable, but, but the initial creation of the earth could have happened millions or billions of years ago. And the dinosaurs, the Mesozoic era, the era of reptiles, that fits really nicely into this initial creation of the earth. And it's really interesting because at the end of this period, at the end of the Mesozoic era, you have an absolute uh, earth-wide extinction event. Something happened, and the scientists can see that. They, they see the Chicxulub crater in, in Mexico, massive asteroid impact crater, and they see evidence earth-wide of of utter destruction linked to that asteroid, possibly linked to other asteroids hitting the Earth. Um, 
linked to possible volcano, uh, volcanic eruptions and that type of thing, an absolute earth-wide destruction. And that really fits well with uh, the end of this plan A, the end of this first age here in Genesis 1 verse 2. And primarily they, they look at this this impact crater and even that matches up really well with this verse because it talks about darkness being upon the face of the deep. And that, that kind of a destruction, throwing dust up into the air, massive, I think it was an eight, eight meter, sorry, eight mile wide uh, meteor that hit Earth, that would have thrown up sort of a, a nuclear winter type cloud into the air that would have blocked out the sun. Darkness precisely would have been upon the face of the deep. So that would have marked the end of the age of the dinosaurs. Now, the recreation of the earth, uh, starting in verse 3, the, the creation week, seven-day creation week, that marks the start of the mammalian era, the, the, the mm-hmm. age of mammals, the Cenozoic era is what the scientists would call that. So we've got the Mesozoic era, which, which ended with the destruction of the earth, um, uh, as described in verse 2. And then we have the start of the Cenozoic era, and it's within this era that we have the Ice Age animals, that we have uh, early man, that we have, uh, you, you could name it, woolly mammoths, saber-toothed tigers, that type of thing. And uh, when you look at Genesis 1 verse 26, it talks about this age, this period, the Cenozoic era, this being made for man. And when you think about it, there couldn't have been dinosaurs around at this time because man couldn't have thrived in a world of dinosaurs. This was a different world. This was an age of mammals, the Cenozoic era. So uh, let's just talk about dating for a little bit. Uh, you Essentially, you're saying that uh, there are problems with dating, but we wouldn't say that they're so problematic that you couldn't at least put a lot of, say, the dinosaurs and other things before that 6,000-year time frame uh, that you're talking about. Uh, how, how, how reliable is the dating? Well, the, put simply, the dating methods are really unreliable. They, they rely on the Earth essentially being in a fixed system. So it always was as it, as it currently is. And so we can, uh, the thinking is, is that we can, we can look back at, at history and, and see this, um, the, these half-lives, and we can measure half-lives and, and accurately calculate back millions and millions of years. And that's, that's simply wrong, and scientists have, have been proving that that assumption is, is wrong quite regularly. Uh, solar flares, which happen regularly, throw-off dating methods, uh, even fluctuations in Earth's magnetic field throws that off. Uh, changes in the seasons throw that off, and even the use of nuclear weapons over the past um, mm. past century, nuclear testing throws that off. So it 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 isn't accurate at all. We can tell that uh, that the age of the dinosaurs just doesn't fit in the age we're in now, and and the, the age of age of the the fossils, dinosaur fossils are certainly much much older than than say the age of man. Um, animals from the Ice Age, that type of thing. So we can't be absolutely sure, as many of the scientists are, that that the Cretaceous period ended 65 million years ago. Mm. Uh, I would say that you can't put a date on it like that. But certainly, 
it was much longer than 6,000 years ago. Yeah. So we're, it, we're just about out of time, but uh, so what happened to these Ice Age animals, I guess, is the, the last question. Well, it's really interesting because at the end of the dinosaur age, you have uh, the Cretaceous Paleogene extinction event. Science recognizes it. And it fits well with Genesis 1 verse 2. Now, what we also have is another extinction event that matches up with the Ice Age animals. And this is known as the Quaternary Extinction Event. And this actually actually matches up quite well with the flood. Hmm. And scientists aren't exactly sure as to what caused this mass extinction event of, of animals like well, your typical Ice Age animals like the woolly mammoths, the saber-toothed tigers, the giant sloths. Scientists aren't exactly sure what caused this. Some theories are that it's related to glacial movement, related to a rise in temperature, which could correspond to quite a, a rise in sea level. And obviously that uh, brings to mind imagery of, of a flood and animals being wiped out by a great flood. And so you have this quaternary extinction event, which scientists roughly date to ending at about 10,000 years ago. Hmm. Now, the dating, again, you can dispute about the dating, but that's fairly recent history in terms of what scientists accept. And then it's only following that period that we have evidence of civilization, uh, typical evidence of human civilization which is what you would expect after a worldwide flood mm -hmm. you wouldn't expect much evidence of of cities and civilizations after that point uh so that fits really nicely with with the account of the flood the the quaternary extinction event fascinating stuff we appreciate that chris we've been talking to watch jerusalem staff member christopher eames about how to reconcile dinosaurs and other ancient findings with the bible he gave a podcast on this very subject you can find it at watchjerusalem.co.il the title of that dinosaurs the ice age and early man evidence against the bible and uh, you get more detail than what he re Chris was able to give us here during this interview. But we certainly appreciate you uh, doing your best to squeeze it in for us, Chris. Thank you. Been a pleasure. is Trumpet Hour with Joel Hilliker. As Europe faces a number of challenges that threaten its identity, there's a growing interest in the history and heritage of the Holy Roman Empire. This is very interesting if you understand history, and particularly if you understand biblical prophecy, which says that another resurrection of the Holy Roman Empire will rise in our day. To talk about this, we have trumpet writer Josue Michels. Hello. Hello, good to be here. Um, trumpet editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry wrote about this in uh, the October 2018 Trumpet edition. Uh, his article was, The Holy Roman Empire Goes Public Big Time. Let's start by just talking about that a little bit. What was he talking about? At the time, Mr. Flurry talked about the Austrian Chancellor Sebastian Kurz. 
He was chancellor at the time, and in his chancellorship, he cooperated closely with the Roman Catholic Church in his country, and he also promoted the culture of the history of Europe, which is the Holy Roman Empire, dominantly in Europe. Sebastian Kurz promoted the crown of the Holy Roman Empire in Brussels, and the crown of the Holy Roman Empire gave emperors in the past the divine authority to rule in Europe. And showing that he promoted that crown and the arts of the Holy Roman Empire was a drastic change in how Europe treated its history of that empire. So the Holy Roman Empire, uh, maybe you could just give us a, a, a brief overview of what that empire is uh, for those who are unfamiliar with the history. Right. So the Holy Roman Empire ruled Europe for centuries, but still many people don't actually know what that emperor empire was about. It's called Holy Roman Empire because it closely cooperated with the Roman Catholic Church. And the empire followed on the heels of the Roman Empire, and it got started in the 5th century. And it was marked by often rising and falling and coming to power again. Most, most people would say it brought much unity and culture to Europe, and that's why it's celebrated. But people also have to admit that this unity was brought about by many bloody conflicts, wars, crusades, and persecution of religious minorities. So there's the two signs of the coin for that empire. So yeah, they're, they're kind of ignoring the, uh, the bloody side of things and focusing on the, on the cultural side. Yes, people usually don't like to talk about the bloody side, but they do admit it, it had happened and happened for a cause. So uh, tell us more what's happened recently. That article that uh, Mr. Flurry wrote, that was October 2018, but there have been some more recent developments within Austria in particular uh, as far as uh, promoting the Holy Roman Empire. Yes, Europe as a whole has led in 2018 a year of cultural heritage where they promoted the culture throughout Europe. But I think in 2019, Austria is taking it another step toward celebrating that empire. And for the occasion, they used the 500th anniversary of the death of one of the emperors of the Holy Roman Empire, and that is Maximilian I. He died 500 years ago, but his heritage is still alive today, the Austrian people and authorities claim. So with more than hundreds of events and celebratory masses, they celebrate the history and the legacy of that emperor. So well, tell us about him, Maximilian I. What are they, what are they excited about with him and, and maybe what should give us uh, a bit of concern that they're, <laughs> that they're so positive toward him? Right, again, with this emperor, there are two signs of the coin. And he is a special one because... M most successful, he was mostly successful with expanding his empire through marriages. He had married his sons to the dynasty in Spain and expanded the empire in that way. But he also led more than or about 25 military campaigns, and they were often very bloody. But he wasn't very successful in them, so he's not quite remembered from them. What he's known from the military campaigns is that he used technology of his time for new military measures and that got him quite some fame at the time but even more he is known for using the media at his time to promote himself and the empire so he was a 
media he knew, he knew how to use the media of his time and that's what's celebrated today in Austria for example he was obsessed by himself and he used the media which was coins particularly <laughs> at the time to print his image on the coins to spread his image throughout the empire so he was actually the first emperor of the Holy Roman Empire that was known by his faith throughout the entire empire that was unprecedented and he was celebrated for it so today, the Austria actually has lots of ads which portray him as a selfie-taking emperor. Now, that looks kind of cute, but it kind of also puts away with the bloody history that he was involved in. So the international media aren't really paying attention to what's going on here. I guess if they do talk about it, they're pretty positive about it. Uh, we're looking at this very differently at thetrumpet.com. Why is this something that should be concerning to us? Right, because if you look at those cultural events, there are musicals, there are tours, there are children programs, there are masses, the church is heavily involved. It just doesn't look dangerous at all. And it's celebrating something of an ancient past that doesn't have much meaning to people today anymore. But that's exactly what is dangerous if you understand the history of the Holy Roman Empire. Because historically, this empire always rose with a corresponding cultural revival. They went ahead and celebrated their history of the past. They celebrated their saints of the past. They celebrated their emperors of the past as a means to unite the people of their realm. They want to unite them for a common cause, under one religion, under one culture. Now, that doesn't seem bad, and it didn't seem bad at the time. It was a way to celebrate the history. It was to celebrate the people and their identity. But what it does is something very unique to the Holy Roman Empire. It united the people. It united them under one cause, under one identity. But if you think about it, it united only Catholics, because only they could identify with that empire because it was ruled not only by a state but also by the religion of the Roman Catholic Church. Now those who didn't embrace that religion or didn't embrace the history of that empire or didn't embrace the emperors of the past or saints, they didn't join in with the celebration. They didn't come to the musicals, they didn't come to the celebratory events, they didn't attend the masses. So soon they became the outsiders. They were asked why don't you join in? And once they became the outsiders, in the next stage they became the persecuted. They were told to embrace this revival or else. And if they didn't embrace it, if they stuck to their beliefs, whatever it was, they became from the persecuted soon to be the martyr. So I think people would still tend to view all of that as ancient history, but... Uh, like you, you wrote an article about this, and you mentioned how some of this same tendency to want to, to refer back to and to glorify that Holy Roman Empire past, you saw that in the um, in the reign of Adolf Hitler, which is obviously a lot more recent history. That's right. It happened throughout the empire where that cultural revival preceded military conflicts because you can't lead a nation to military conflicts before you unite them and give them a cause and really inspire them to fight for the cause of the empire. And most people don't associate 
Adolf Hitler with that cultural revival because the bloodshed he caused far exceeds any good he might have brought. But in 1935, most people saw him as a peaceful ruler that revived the German legacy that brought glory, peace and culture back to the empire and unity. And at the time, in 1935, he did something peculiar for people at the time and people didn't really understand it. He embraced the tradition of Charlemagne, who ruled the Holy Roman Empire in the 1800s. Maximilian I also praised Charlemagne. But what Hitler did was unique. He brought the crown of the Holy Roman Empire back to Germany. And I have a quote here from a professor and renowned German medieval researcher who studied Hitler. His name is Johannes Fried. In an interview with Die Welt, he discussed Hitler's program to bring Charlemagne's legacy back to life. And he said Hitler's statements were preparing for his own acts of violence. To praise Charles was a strategy of legitimacy. In other words, Hitler praised Charlemagne, showing how good Charlemagne was in uniting Europe, how good he was in bringing culture to Europe. And he also showed later on that Charlemagne could only unite Europe by f letting the people fight for that vision of Europe. So I would think that there would still be people who would, who would say um, they would have a hard time imagining this being revived to the degree or to the extent, uh, to the dangerous degree that it has been in the past. Um, but it really is something that you have to look at in the context of biblical prophecy. Yes, I don't blame the people, if they look at Europe today, very, very few think there would another Holocaust would be imaginable. And that's the same in the history of the Holy Roman Empire. This empire rose so many times and people thought this time it is peaceful. But we at the, at the trumpet and at our predecessor, the plain truth, has expected the rise of this Holy Roman Empire to come again. And now to see that the, that the European people are again embracing this history on such a large scale in a year-long nationwide celebration, for us that's a strong proof that those prophecies are being fulfilled. Now, Europe was in peace for 70 years, but the Bible says that war is again about to break out. And how do we know that? Now, it was revealed to a man called man with the name of Herbert W. Armstrong. He lived during the 20th centuries for the most part and he saw the rise of Adolf Hitler. And at the time, God revealed to him a scripture in Revelation 17.10, which reads, And there are seven kings, five are fallen, and one is, and the other is not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short space. Now that's talking about Adolf Hitler. That is the one is. But more importantly, it is revealed during a time when Herbert W. Armstrong was on the scene and he prophesied about the rise of the Holy Roman Empire. He understood the history of the Holy Roman Empire. He studied the five that are fallen. He saw that the one is and he prophesied of the one that is yet to come. And we are now seeing the one that is about to come. We are seeing the last resurrection of the Holy Roman Empire. And we know that while It brings a cultural revival. We also know it will also bring 
a violent explosion of violence, just as it has in the past, but on a much larger scale. Now we prophesy about these events while Europe is at large at peace and the cultural events seem peaceful. And we don't do that to give, take people's hopes away. Much rather we want to show them what the true source of hope is. And that is the God of the Bible who prophesied about the five that are fallen, the one that is, that was Adolf Hitler, and the one that is yet to come. And we want to show people that the God who prophesied about his Holy Roman Empire will also put an end to it. And what's more, he intervenes in the lives of everyone that heeds the message today and corresponds with and responds with repenting and turning to God who prophesied about the rise of the Holy Roman Empire. Thank you for that, Josue. We've been talking to trumpet writer Josue Michels about Europe and Austria in particular celebrating the Holy Roman Empire. He has an article on the trumpet.com called The Holy Roman Empire Revives in Austria. You can go check that out. We thank you very much for your time. Thank you. It's time for today's Last Word. Raising rowdy boys into responsible men is difficult. You want to know one of the best things that we can do for our sons? Our children are growing up in a wired world. The Kaiser Family Foundation says children ages 8 to 18 spend an average of six and a half hours a day with media, television, radio, computers, not including schoolwork music players, and so on. That's over 45 hours a week. That's also more time than they spend with their parents, which is less than 16 hours. Time in physical activity, 10 and a half hours, or doing homework, just over five hours. Looking at those numbers alone, it's not difficult to see a correlation between increased media use and family breakdown and childhood obesity and declining academic performance. Technology is a strong drug. It grabs young minds. It dominates them. Boys in particular tend to love the stuff, especially video games. Beyond the mere time issue, though, is the content of that media. Studies prove it's hurting our boys. It's our duty as parents to intervene. In her book, Boys Should Be Boys, Meg Meeker writes this, As a pediatrician, I can tell you that disconnecting or strictly limiting and strictly supervising your son's access to electronic media is one of the best things you can do for his emotional, mental, and physical health. Now, this kind of parental control has gotten unpopular in our permissive age, and our children are suffering for it. Think about it. Young people have no built-in sense of right and wrong. They have no natural means of distinguishing something acceptable from something destructive. Young people might know how to use a certain technology, but be unaware of the risks that it poses, and it makes them particularly susceptible to its evil effects. We as parents must be the gatekeepers of our children's minds as we train them how to be responsible for their own minds. 
It takes time to teach right from wrong and to help them develop the character to hit the off switch or walk away from bad influences. So in the meantime, we need to control the off switch. Our vigilance in our son's media usage can help prevent a multitude of problems from taking root in their lives. Boys tend to be drawn to media violence far more than girls, and there's plenty of media out there to inflame that appetite. But it's a trap we need to steer our sons away from. The American Academy of Pediatrics has repeatedly warned that television violence hurts our children. It's found that boys who watch violent TV turn more aggressive, even with brief exposure, but much more with larger doses. Playing violent video games correlates to even worse antisocial aggression. Meeker cites studies showing that they increase aggressive thoughts, they can increase feelings of anger or hostility, and can raise a boy's blood pressure and heart rate. Video games are increasingly graphic and realistic, and in many of them, the object is to kill people. Professor David Grossman, he's a 24-year Air Force veteran who testified before a senatorial committee on youth violence, he says that the parallels are strong with the techniques that the military uses to prepare men for violent combat. Violent video games desensitize our boys to human suffering and actually condition them to kill. Meeker says this, when the images are bombarded on an eight-year-old brain, a boy can easily shift from believing that a man is supposed to be trustworthy and self-controlled, as you, his father, might have taught him, to believing that real men are cruel and aggressive. Ensuring that our son's model of responsible masculine behavior remains balanced and realistic requires that we strive to limit those false images and provide a good example and solid instruction of what is true and right. The world is filled with dangers, and a lot of them come via the media. Our sons need a strong moral compass in order to navigate this crucial aspect of their lives and to make it to manhood as unscathed as possible. We want to facilitate any use of technology and media that is genuinely good for our boys, that builds right knowledge and cognitive development and strong character. But we want to draw firm lines on what is going to hurt them. And knowing where to draw those lines, both in quantity and in the content, requires educating ourselves and also asking God for wisdom and discernment. Teach your boy right from wrong. Show him how a real man like King David says in Psalm 101, verse 3, I will set no wicked thing before my eyes. Provide a good example and then supplement that with a whole lot of good instruction. I'm Joel Hilliker. That'll do it for today's Trumpet Hour. You can send me any thoughts on today's program to lettersatthetrumpet.com. Thanks to my guests, Christopher Eames and Josue Michels. Thanks to Jesse Hester for engineering and production. I'll leave you with this thought from Sam Adams. The religion and public liberty of a people are intimately connected. Their interests are interwoven. 
They cannot subsist separately, and therefore they rise and fall together. For this reason, it is always observable that those who are combined to destroy the people's liberties practice every art to poison their morals. Thank you for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time, keep watching your world. You've been listening to Trumpet Hour on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG, and online at kpcg.fm. Understand your world. 